I'm Sabine van der Linden. Today, I will be meeting with one of my greatest friends, Nicole Anderson. Nicole and I know each other for now over seven years, as Nicole was a mentor on my accelerator program. Nicole was helping at the time my ventures accelerate. She will bring some ideas for them to improve their go-to-market strategy. Today, I want to talk to Nicole about a career as a fintech venture builder. And I would also like to address a new path around sustainable investing. So here is Nicole. So good morning, Nicole. Today I'm with Nicole Anderson, a great friend of mine with whom I've been working now for many years. And Nicole is an investor for Red Sand Ventures. She has been building ventures as well during the course of her career. And today we want to actually demystify corporate venturing looking at Nicole's lens. So welcome, Nicole. Good morning, Sabine. Thank you very much for having me. So, Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about you? Because I know you for so long, right? We worked together on the Ad Accelerator, where you were a mentor for a lot of my startups, helping them shape their proposition, refine their go-to-market strategy, and also invited them to meet your big clients as well. So uh, tell us, who are you? <laughs> Who am I? I think everyone struggles um, with that. Um, yeah, that, that's quite a question. But I think in the context of this podcast, um, I historically have been very heavily involved in technology innovation. Um, that has taken many guises over both a corporate career and an entrepreneurial career. So in summary, I have sat now effectively, um, given my kind of current journey, I've sat in almost every, around every seat on the table when it comes to looking at what investable ventures look like, feel like, and what success look, should be um, and could be. Um, thankfully, I've had probably the, the toughest schooling in an area, I think, for making a success of any business, and that's to break through some of the barriers in, in financial services, right? Um, so I think both you and I have shared a deep passion for unbundling um, what has been a might that has, you know, perhaps one would argue, disserved the consumer and the individual. That's always been a big, a big, um, a big aspiration of myself is to actually look at how um, financial services, the emphasis being on serve, actually does good. Um, and to that end, um, I've worked therefore very extensively in fintech building ventures um, through my own lab, um, an incubation lab um, in financial services that lasted for about eight years. And for the last, let's argue 15 months or so, I've um, pivoted. Um, thankfully, this very strange period we've been in has been a, another opportunity for me to ground myself and reinvent. And I'm now um, very heavily in, involved in impact investing. So the, I guess the path that I've been on is, is a perfect platform because um, there is money to be, um, to be allocated in the world. There always will be. But it's only when you've taken the journey yourself and I have taken and actually been involved at grassroots level, you understand fundamentally, you can see through immediately what it would take to actually make money work and actually have a true impact. So I've now finally, I think, got to the point in my life where I'm actually bringing it all together. Congratulations. So two main pillars First, building ventures and fintech ventures, which, which matter. And then the second pillar is now moving into sustainable investing. So I'd like to start with the first one. Can you tell us what brought you into 
building ventures. And can you share with us example of ventures you've built? And the last bit of the question is, what has been the impact of those ventures on our world? Absolutely. Um, well, I, I guess I, like anything in life, you know, I'm, I'm, I think the best opportunities come to you rather than you chasing them down. <laughs> Very often what you think you want is not actually good for you. Um, unless you're highly intuitive, which I'd argue we're all working on to some degree. Um, so I um, I knew instinctively um, that I needed to leave corporate life um, towards the end of 2000 and 2010. Took me a couple of years to actually disengage, but thankfully I was somewhat prepared for moving into an entrepreneurial into the entrepreneurial world, and that was I I ran. Um, I was head of innovation for a large software company uh, in the UK. And that company was probably one of the pioneers actually in obtaining um, a financial services license, a payment license, but still it was is pretty exotic at that point in time. So my job effectively there was to actually put this company through reg a regulatory process in and license application, which was very painful at that point in time, because the world didn't understand, you know, how a non-bank player could move into effectively a, a transactional service, which was always, the, you know, the, the, the mainstay and, and re responsibility of, of traditional banking um, and lending. So that's um, that prepared me. Um, I'm that was also an accelerator because I was incredibly frustrated because I could see the rise of fintech. I could see all the companies I was looking at as examples of build-ons, um, how interesting they were, um, and how um, there was so much headroom to take. I, I guess what I thought I could deliver to them to market. So I dropped everything. I left my career with nothing to go to and so I, I wouldn't advise it necessarily for everyone but I went completely cold turkey and I launched myself into as you've done right very naturally um, mostly taking on the knowledge of entrepreneurs but actually finding myself giving them just as much as they were giving me so I, I sat and worked with many entrepreneurs advising them um, and I began to see patterns I began to see you know, real, you know, typical issues. And those typical issues were generally around go to market. They were generally how to position the story, um, how to understand how to de-risk um, their market. Engineering wise and value proposition wise, they were great ideas, but they had often a problem um, articulating the vision um, and then testing that vision and getting that vision to the market. And that's, I think, you know, is still today one of the biggest challenges entrepreneurs face because they're very wedded. They're often very blind to their own baby. So, um, so anyway, long story short, what that exercise gave me was not only a number of advisory positions, but allowed me to run a couple of startups myself. Um, and then that transitioned me into um, working with corporates. Um, so going back into my old camp, so to speak, but this time I was kind of bleeding more into financial services to say, look, I understand your world better than you do, but I'm also on the other side now. Um, and, you, you know, you're all wanting to have some kind of affiliation to innovation. How do you maximize your money in the, the most de-risked way? And it's certainly not just throwing it at let's not say, you know, research is not a bad thing, but it's certainly not attaching yourself to sponsorship to a, a fintech contest or just doing a load of desk research. You actually have to get stuck in and experience the entrepreneurial journey and, and, not, and also not crush it. So by, you know, by the grace of whoever, I managed to actually um, extract a number of mandates from a single bank. Um, and my work in Africa helped me a lot because a lot was happening at the time with, with financial inclusion on the continent. And so there was all the reason for large financial institutions to learn from the African footprint, because a lot of, you know, a lot of the a lot of the tension with the telcos was actually a big threat to banks, let alone, you know, some of the new entrepreneurs coming to, to the fore. 
So I got heavily involved in, in working with banks. Um, so Africa, Australia, you know, Sabine, you know, that's where we met my work in Australia. And then, of course, in Europe. Yeah, I remember. Um, yeah. Um, and insurance companies. Um, and it, for me, it was always very evident, you know, there's a time um, and a place if a, if a large institution or corporate has money and they want a blended approach. Um, and they can do it, then it's always a good idea to have, you know, effectively a diversified strategy where you, you do things in-house, you do things externally, and you place capital independently in, in, in innovation, right? So R&D, then I would say venture building, and then investing. It, that's the nirvana, right? Because then you really get a good taste and you if also manage able to manage the risk. But many organizations didn't have that. Many organizations didn't have a fund. They didn't have the wherewithal to actually manage the fund. Um, and so, you know, whilst I sat on a couple of investment committees for, for, for um, corporate venture funds, a lot of them were just saying, how do we maximize a pool of money? And I said, well, then you, you basically, you need to build that, that, that concept yourself, but you're likely to fail if you only do it internally right and we can go into that later so i took on that job and um out of that process um i got involved in building a number of different ventures um i would say 30 projects all in all in eight years um i would say for me personally i only had 10 successes but that's not a bad hit rate and they're very good reasons why some of those why the 20 didn't go forward. Um, but when I say 20, 30 projects, these were market validated projects. Um, and they spanned various areas. So um, there was peer-to-peer -peer, peer -peer lending, there was a crypto exchange way before, you know, way before the craze started. And, you know, so sort of five years ago, it was very, very early for crypto, but we, we got stuck in there. We um, got involved in building um, uh, uh, mobile money solutions, as you can well imagine. We got involved, of course, in looking at a number of, I would say, consumer uh, robo-advisory solutions. I got quite close to actually launching a pension disruptor platform using a robo-advisory backend. Um, and then by hook or by crook, I was able to kind of get into the world of sustainability. And that's when I started looking at tokenization, looking at um, real asset tokenization, looking at how you could effectively utilize tokenization for the consumer in real assets. Um, and so digital assets became an area I got involved in. Um, so those are the areas I, you know, I, 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 basically we're building um, and very, very different, very, very challenging. All of the areas um, not only involved the technology build, the value proposition obviously had to hit the mark. These, these ventures had to be launched and in market before I was seen as being successful. Um, we had to often go out and raise additional money from VCs. So that became a very good lesson for me personally. And finally, I mean, I think, you know, it goes without saying um, that the, the friction point for many a venture in the FinTech world is obviously um, the friction around governance and legalities, licenses. So that was a, you know, a constant, a constant consideration as well. So yeah, that's, that's how it all happened. This is interesting. So I just would like to give a little bit of a summary because you covered so much. Mm -hmm. First, when you start looking at fintech, what we learn both actually is that um, one of the main challenge for young ventures is the go-to-market strategy. And when we work with them, it's interesting because we, we go often around validating and really spending so much time on really understanding who that customer is. Um, but also we tend to work with a lot of tech experts. And so whilst we need to get into that customer mindset, they tend to shift back to the technology and really, you know, loving their, you know, one of my friends from old times used to say to love their ugly babies. And, you know, I didn't really like that statement, but actually I very much understood what he meant where we just hold on things and we don't always spend time understanding who the customer is. 
Then the second point, which I think is super important, is you've always been passionate about values and beliefs, and you went to work on financial resilience, financial inclusion. And a lot of fintech you've built were linked to that. You mentioned, you know, fight between banks and telcos. I remember the time of M-Pesa, right, six, seven years ago, built by, you know, very known telecom company. And the reason why I got to know about this project is because they were able to embed insurance already at the time to enable farmers to get parametric insurance. You know, some of the keywords we we talked about in insurance right now, that was already very much in place seven years ago in Africa. And you've done that in, you know, on the African continent, but also in Asia. And when you start connecting all those dots, you actually have been able to look at new technology like blockchain and smart contracts and tokenization to start seeing how you can democratize innovation and enable people who may not have access to wealth and financial resilience to do so. So that is commendable, Nicole. Mm -hmm. So now you have joined everything into a new space which is sustainable investing. And I think it's very important to understand that journey as to how you connected the dot to move into that new phase of venturing. Yes, um, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, I think um, I'm just a doer, really. Um, I, I, and I've always kind of, you know, maybe... <laughs> This this particular life journey is one hell of a lesson because I've always done things the hard way. Um, so um, yeah, no, no medals re required there. But um, so building ventures is very very tough. Um, you know, to be effectively running three entrepreneurial complex ventures in a year, right? Uh, means you know means something. So. Um, and all the lessons that come out of that in eight years um, prepared me, I think, for knowing um, one thing, and that is the, the success, the biggest success factor in a venture is, first of all, well, there's three things. First of all is knowing your market and not assuming that your market is going to remain static thinking ahead of the market and being absolutely relevant with your value proposition all the time. And that requires a really strong degree of, of paranoia, which then cascades down into how your business model evolves, right? Um, never make any assumptions that things are going to stay the same, or you know your consumer or your, your customer more than you think you do, right? That's a massive lesson I learned. And then the third thing, um, certainly in, in the venture building, corporate venture world, is you will always likely, everything fails without money, right? And money will always find good opportunity, but never underestimate the runway you need, right? Because you can do the best job in the world. But my blocks always, you know, I talk about the 20, the 20 projects that didn't get far enough, there was a, it was a combination, not so much on the value proposition side, but there was always a complication on um, ownership, politics, but also the runway of money. So I decided um, coming to the end of that, I'd had enough, I've had enough. And like I tried to get out of working in corporate activity too much. And I found myself being dragged into politics that wasn't actually my politics, right? Um, and I, I just got very frustrated um, with decisions that were being made that weren't the best for anyone, really, when it came to the, the, the venture itself. So, um, um, so, so I knew that if I was going to be successful, I needed to sit on the money myself and be master of my own universe. Um, and so by hook or by crook, I was going to do what it took to actually find ways in which to basically build my own investment structure so that's when I spent I, I made a decision again like on a, a spinning here on spinning heels to actually go and set up a fund um, I've tried this before but of course um, the world's very different um, so I, I, I began the process as you know Sabine um, round about January December January to 2020 really good timing um, and 
and that was on the back of building ventures in and around the sustainability area. So real estate, I was involved in clean tech. I was involved in a little bit of energy um, and, um, and supply chain tokenization. So I, I was beginning to understand um, the kind of environmental potential of, of solutions and the huge opportunity we had and, and needed to have, right? And that the interest of capital, the, the real the real frustration for many entrepreneurs is that their innovation that was effectively in the area of, of, of green innovation was being misunderstood. And so I wanted to be that gap. So um, yeah, so I, you know, 2020 was an interesting year, um, pivoted many, many times, but we're now at a position um, where we've effectively built a our first portfolio of projects. Um, and I say that because many people will be scratching their heads going, well, you know, doesn't private equity or VC raise money and then go out and find deal flow? We are not a VC or a private equity fund. We're an investment structure. Um, that uses effectively very innovative project financing in a way um, that allows us to deploy effectively a debt instrument um, across a varied portfolio um, and absorb quite a lot of risk for that portfolio in the way we've engineered the money. So we don't invest very early stage. Um, we have in some very strategic areas, but most of our um, work at the moment is, is, is kind of growth phase. Um, and it's move, and we've moved well out of the area of just financial services, right? So, very quickly, I had to look at what does impact mean, and maybe we can talk about that. Um, and I identified five to six areas or verticals or industries that I believed if I could just have, you know, a stellar portfolio strategy in each one of them, just one major investment in each one of them. I was certain to make a significant impact for any country or any region. And that's the strategy we've taken. Important to realize that to be successful in venturing, you have to have what I call the triangle. <laughs> I work, as you know, with a lot of growth ventures. I do insurance technology, but to be able to do insurance technology, I need to look at fintech, wealth tech, health tech, pretty much everything, cyber, AI. And so it's interesting when people talk to me about insurance technology, I have to actually now reverse. It's like technology for insurance. And so this is very important. That's the first pillar, the growth venture. The second is our experience working with corporates. And you have donkey's years working with corporates. I have a lot of years working with corporates. And those are great connection grounds to understand what problems need to be solved or what problems are not solved and allow or potentially ventures to drive competitive advantage and look at the future and what needs to be done. But the third pillar is money. The third pillar is investment. And so, you know, you have built you know, like I have amazing relationship with investors because a lot of the companies we work with need to talk to those investors. And you have done the lip of building an investment structure, which allow ventures you're working with and identifying as sustainable, uh, investable companies to find a path to growth. So very important to, to know that. So it would be great to talk about your pillars of growth, so your topics, and also how you differentiate impact from sustainability. I think it's also a very important um, definition to make because I think a lot of ventures today which are being built, which are sustainable ventures, are actually returning more value to their investors than normal businesses. But I think we need to make a difference between sustainability and impact. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, hmm, that's a bit of a challenging one to be short and sharp on. Um, I think we're in an evolution. I know we're in an evolution, I should say. Um, and anyone who's in the spectrum of uh, effectively grassroots investing right through to the biggest kind of multi-fund structure um, has, has is in the adoption phase of some kind of strategy around sustainability. So 
For me personally, I think sustainability is a universal term that is like, you know, highly aggregated, right? Um, sustainable, sustainability means many, many different things, but beneath it, the execution can vary, right? Um, and so it's it's very important as a, you know, people, you know, you need a term, right? So sustainability is like obviously a, a default strategically to have within a portfolio or within, you know, a corporate strategy, but actually its interpretation um, is very often up to the particular conditions of um, the entity involved in it, right? So with a large corporate sustainability could mean, could mean and should mean effectively how they operate themselves, you know, are, are there are their activities on a daily basis doing more good than harm is like a very low factor um, in however they look to, to kind of measure that. And that is both in terms of their staff, um, their partners and society and customers as a great, as a whole, as well as the environment. An investor depends, you know, in the spectrum um, would look at sustainability in a number of different ways. Um, you know, a, a you know a multi-fund um, alternative investment manager, let's put it that way, would look at simply looking at exposure uh, to a portfolio in in greener greener activities, infrastructure, um, energy, even technology, um, versus you know someone like me, where I am measured effectively on the impact. So the difference between, so sustainability, big term can be deployed and used and in many different ways. Um, I think we should also throw ESG in there, right? Because that's also, you know, in the eye of the beholder. Um, if we're talking in investment terms, um, this is very frustrating for someone like me because I'm actually uh, very often find that I am the odd one at the party, right? So whether I'm being brought to be on panels, advisory panels, a voice for sustainability and ESG, I often go, I'm the wrong person. And the reason being is ESG is very much within, is being hijacked, and that's not said you know, in a bad way, but effectively it's, it's terminology that sits with bigger entities, whether they be, you know, bigger walls of capital or big, you know, stakeholders and corporates, right? So, um, and in and of itself, ESG is very complicated. It's not homo it's not an well understood. It's interpreted and and you know has many different definitions, right? Um, so it's not harmonious, um, and this is part of the problem. So investors that have an ESG strategy could effectively mean anything, right? When it comes to impact, I am very clear on what my measurements are and what my KPIs are. I have a return threshold, which I have to meet. It is not double digit necessarily, but it can be, all right, depending on the project and the nature of the project. So a technology company that's do, that I define that has a, has a impactful strategy, um, I would expect to be double digit, but a real estate project well, may not necessarily have a, a, a double digit um, um, return, but I can hand on, hand on heart actually trace the money flow to what that what that what that company is doing, either for the community it serves, its customers it serves, or the environment. And so my measurement is effectively multifaceted. I look at a return threshold to make profit for sure. But, and I'm, and in some respects, I would say I'm just as a contender of the old guard, but I'm equally, I would say 50, 50 or 60 at this stage, 50, 50, but I'd like to get it to 60, 40 skewed towards impact. I'm now looking at the portfolio, double downing onto the portfolio, monitoring you know, over the next five years, what are the metrics for how that particular venture is affecting a community, its customers, its partners, 
and of course the environment. And that is impact measures. So return on impact is, I do believe, is going to become a very important, you know, if not more important than return on investment. Um, and so that's um, that's something that a lot of people are grappling with um, in traditional investment circles, and in, in, in you know, because that's never been, you know, if you take a classic VC structure, they just don't have the resources to be able to monitor projects at that level. Um, and so we've really had to think about how we structure ourselves in order to provide the resources on the ground, right? To be able to interface, intersect, monitor and add value to the portfolio. So what would be your definition of return on impact? Because most of us, are used to talking about return on investment. So we have a project, we are looking at metrics and PV and all those things, and we need to meet those targets within a timeline. So what would be return on impact, Nicole? So these are headlines because we could, you know, they, they're all very complicated in and of themselves. But some very easy examples would be um, job creation, would be uh, aspects such as biodiversity health and improvement, environmental regeneration, which can all be measured, um, can be supply chain improvement, whilst also because supply chains and value chain improvement, which is, you know, everyone and anyone is connected as we well know, but what is essentially the ethical um, implications of efficient supply chains, right? So you can double down on the efficiency and the ethical scores. Um, and these are all very good examples for me that I consider is very, very important, impactful mechanisms to actually evaluate and monitor on an ongoing basis. And they can all be metricized. They can all be you know, effectively monitored quarter on quarter, year on year. This takes me to some of the work we have done around the transition economy and transition risk. And you know from that work and you participated to workshop with me and we welcome 60 leaders uh, for an innovation event actually, where we looked at sustainability and I guess impact as you are defining it as first understanding how you can have you can reshape your business operationally, so operational change, how you can build the product and services of the future, which therefore lead to identifying new emerging risk in my, in my space. And lastly, looking at your value chain of value transfer uh, impact as well, because your partners need to actually understand that they need to do things now as well, which led to some impact area we looked at, right? environmental risk and our impact on environment, emission risk, and how we measure that across industry, energy construction, building. We also looked at it from a people risk, young people, Gen Z, not wanting to go and work for big companies, safety risk. You know, are you taking care of those people going up the building and maybe disappearing because of a fatality. So those were some of the metrics or the drivers we started looking at. But then now we can go to the next level you are saying, looking at metrics where you know we are looking now at the outcome and working backwards as to how we are going to deliver on those. Absolutely, and, and I think um, for an impact investor, and I think this will become a norm. This, you know, I don't think I think all investors will be impact investors within three years. If they if they're not, then I would argue, you know, effectively, they they should be outcast by the broader community. All right, I mean, and that includes ourselves, right, as individuals putting our money into mechanisms to create wealth. I mean, I think it's highly irresponsible if we don't at least consider where our money is going and what it's what it's being, what good it's doing in the world. Um, and that, of course, requires quite a lot of transparency, which, of course, the industry is not very good at delivering. Um, but more so than not, I think, an impact investors um, evaluation 
of how it it gets the balance between return on impact and return on investment right is all about risk. Um, <clears throat> because we have more risks than ever um, in the last 10 years and in the last two years. I would say in the last two years, um, the risk models have, first of all, fundamentally broken. I mean, I think... You know, I think every underwriter is going to be super challenged with how they actually predict how, you know, physical assets are going to behave, how our air, water, soil is going to be, you know, be compromised, um, how things we've taken for granted, such as mobility of people, health of people, um, it's, it's all changed, right? So I think we are looking at fundamentally new models of risk. Um, I personally, for example, never considered that as part of my work, one of the biggest issues that I would face is geopolitical risk. But because I'm close to the ground with my investments, if government policy affects um, where my projects are and where my rollout is planned physically, right, this is, this is the challenge of an impact in, in investment strategy. Oh, it absolutely. This is, you know, I've had to deal with regulatory ch challenges and hurdles, but geopolitical risk is rife. And, you know, you just have to, everything is connected now, everything, you know, our, our physical health, our environmental health, the, you know, the, 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 the health of our financial system, our political systems, everything is connected. And so as we transition, there are going to be, you know, these big cycles of change, but they're going to be multiple mini cycles of change. And that risk modeling is, you know, a massive challenge, but exciting. It's, it's super exciting. And no secret, we're all trying to figure it out, right? Well, this is the first time ever. I would argue in probably 150 years that there is no precedent anymore. The last two years have basically undercut any assumptions, right? Um, who would have thought two years ago we'd be in the position we are in today? Um, and I think that's very exciting. I welcome that. I think we were effectively our world wasn't going in the, in the right tra trajectory to be polite. So there's going to be a lot of need to make some very big choices and, and a lot of bravery. And where does bravery typically come from? It comes from those that have the independence of thought and the independence of action, which is typically entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so this is why our work, I think, will come into its own. Um, the, the, the change always comes from the edge. It always comes from the fringe. That is definitely the case. Um, the saddest thing for me, of course, very practically is in the interim, in the last two years, of course, circumstances are very, you know, obvious, a lot of entrepreneurial ability to execute is being cut because of circumstances, right, and, and capital flows. Um, and this is why, you know, I think our work is so important, because that regeneration of ideas is vital. Um, the paradigm is literally changing around us almost on a daily basis so the, this is why ventures venture creation and that those entrepreneurial ideas have to execute with speed right and big companies really need to take this seriously absolutely this morning in the news it was interesting to listen to this activist right which were saying, you know, we are going into COP26 and there is a lot of companies wanted to attend COP26, but it's pretty much, you were saying, lifting on the peg because when you look at what they are actually doing, when you look at sustainability and the impact they are building for the younger people of tomorrow, it's nearly not there. So I think that's important. I think the other point you are making around investing, which I noticed actually, Nicole, is a lot of investors which are reaching out to me, asking, so are those ventures, do they have a sustainability strategy? And I think like, you know, in 2000, when we were talking about the internet, um, that it would become business as usual, I think sustainability will have to be part of strategies, BAU as well. And so more and more investors are asking me about 
whether the young ventures I am seeing are looking at sustainability as part of the way they operate, the way they treat their employees, the way they build their product and services, which I think is revolutionary. So yes, investors are looking at it, I think more and more closely. I think the last point you are making, which I would love to go into, is your point around the, the, the ventures of tomorrow, the entrepreneurs. So what should we be looking at when we look at entrepreneurship and building the ventures of tomorrow? Um, um, well, I can tell you what I'm looking at. <laughs> um, so one way of looking at the opportunity ahead is, is effectively new market makers. Um, in Oh, I didn't mention actually earlier what are the areas we're involved in. I apologize, um, Sabine. But So we're looking, of course, we're looking at um, better ways in which financial um, flows can reach the market and create inclusion. So that still remains. Um, we ourselves actually, I think, are doing some very interesting, innovative things with our own business model. So effectively acting as entrepreneurs in order to address the capital allocation challenge, um, but technology is a big part of that. Um, so we have a, a big eye on uh, risk and risk modeling um, when it comes to evaluating biodiversity and the, and the importance of biodiversity and the value of biodiversity. So that's a, a, a key pillar. Um, and that is all about, you know, obviously technology solutions, um, a combination of, of predominantly asset level data. So whether that be marine data, whether that be soil data, air quality data, and actually looking at you know, what that means for regeneration and therefore the onward value of that asset, whether it be a farmland or a, you know, the health of a, a port, right, for example. Um, so that's one area. The other area we're looking at is the future of health. Um, and of course, that's a massively relevant topic now. Um, we are looking at ways in which we can put our efforts into um, move away from allopathic to anything um, that is organic, um, organic personal care. Um, and of course, new interesting areas such as plant-based um, a treatment. Um, so, you know, medicinal cannabis, um, the area of psychedelics is is a very important thing. Going mad on this area at the moment. It's fascinating yeah. the number of ventures emerging in yeah, that field. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's always a bit worrying when people go like a little bit like, you know, on the bandwagon. But um, I'm, I've always been a firm believer. I'm not a partaker, but I'm a firm believer that we have ignored you know, uh, the very resources in our, you know, around us in, in plant-based plant, plant -based healing, you know, I've always been interested in that area. So now it's becoming mainstream. Um, and I think our world is going to cry out for that, is already crying out for that. Um, we're looking at the future of education, um, predominantly looking at ways in which we could partner with players that are actually bringing new schooling mechanisms to the force, so new schooling modalities, um, basically unpicking very traditional curricula and helping people, um, youngsters, learn very creatively um, and learn effectively to be independent um, of any, you know, environment or infrastructure around them to effectively be entrepreneurs at a very young age. Um, so that's a big passion of ours. We are looking at urban infrastructure, sustainable urban infrastructure. It's, it's predominantly one format at the moment, which is sports and how we can actually bring sport in, in sustainability together in the form of, of arenas that are zero footprint, but also you know, bring communities together, um, educate um, sports people in ways that perhaps they've not had access to before, et cetera. Um, what else are we doing? We're looking at water um, and predominantly you know, biodiversity, marine biodiversity um, and water desalination. That's another area. And, um, and then we have, you know, a couple of horizontal strategies. So we're looking pre predominantly at automation um, because we think that um, automation is, whilst everyone freaks out and they go, well, that's not very sustainable. That's just going to take, 
know, the, the classic line, you know, people love it like a classic line, which is robots are going to eat the world. Well, um, actually, my belief is counter. I think, um, you know, there's a lot to be said around ethical AI, and we are very serious about that. Um, there is, there's nothing more important than human sovereignty in my, in my, from my perspective, nothing more important, but actually a lot of the lack of human sovereignty has come through um, doing the mundane, fitting in. And we have experienced that just recently, right? With the petrol crisis. Yeah, exactly. Now I see automation as a way to free people, free people's minds, right? Um, really, why should we go to the same place, do the same thing and try and ex be exceptional and try to be exceptional people every single day of our lives? So things don't go together. So we are very excited about looking at automation to actually make people more human. <laughs> that's our aspiration. So as you can see, very diverse, um, but that's just happened. That's happened because of the, the, the way in which we've gone about evolving, but also those areas you know, if you look at technology, finance, health, natural resources such as water, education, these are all incredibly impactful areas. If we got all of those right, I mean, we could have dramatic, a dramatic impact on society. Um, and then also the way in which we source capital is very innovative. Um, we, yeah, we we are not, um, we, are, we are looking at graded financial instruments. Um, these are, you know, stock exchange graded financial instruments in the form of, of debt, green debt um, and bonds effectively. Um, and we're looking at the distribution of that um, for good. Um, the issue for many of your listeners um, who know this will understand that um, whilst green bonds are at a premium because everyone wants to say that they have some exposure in fixed assets to something green, the uh, frustrating thing for the real economy, uh, us, you know, is that this debt is never attainable, all right? All it is, is it's basically transacted um, between big institutional players, right? Uh, in secondary markets, mostly. So that pushes the price of that debt up and up and it's used as a, a diversity strategy and really that debt should be reaching real projects. So it's, it's not 100% all there, but we're getting there. Um, it's very innovative. It's, it's very tough to do this, but we, I think we'll be the first people to do it in our market. So that'll be exciting. What would be the last few words you would give our listener? And I would love if you could look at it from an entrepreneurial viewpoint, because listeners would include entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, investors. But what would all the themes, focus area investment activities you are undertaking, what does it mean for entrepreneurial minds that are listening today? I the the one common message amongst our conversation today i believe is the world is forever changed um to have any illusion that we will be going um you know back i mean don't even use the word back i think that's that it truly is an illusion um our world is forever changed and i think it had to change um, change is a, a wonderful thing if you get over the fear of it. Um, and those that embrace change are generally change makers. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And the natural home for those change makers are ventures, new ventures, right? I think, so that's the one message. The other tangential but equally important is I feel a huge flip on ethical elevation. I feel a huge shift in people's, call it consciousness, call it um, purpose. People are wanting to have purpose um, more than ever before, right? More and more people are saying, I am not on this planet in this body for that long. Um, and I want it to mean something. What can I do that has meaning? 
Um, and there's nothing more meaningful than building things um, and the, you know, their creative force. There's nothing more meaningful if that creative force has an impact on people's lives. There's just nothing more meaningful. Sorry, I you know, could argue that to, to the death. Um, and so many people are questioning, are there, you know, is a day in day existence actually meaningful? Um, and that's what we strive to do. So this is not a philosophical discussion. This is just who we are as humans. I think we're all becoming very aware of our own humanity, our own independence, our own value. And that in and of itself can only be accelerated by innovation and innovative minds, creative minds. Um, and irrespective of if your listeners are in companies, running companies, or thinking of leaving companies or are entrepreneurs, um, we're all humans at the end of the day. And we want to you know, leave this planet knowing that we've done our best, all right? Knowing that we have, have something to be proud of, all right? And enjoy what we do as well. So this is, you know, I think the message that I'm trying to get across today, but also try to bring to life um, in what I'm doing. Some days better than others, but that's, that's, my, that's my North Star. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nicole. So let's be... And let's lead with purpose and let's all be change makers at her. Absolutely. Thank you, Sabine. Thank you, Nicole. If you like this podcast, subscribe now, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed it, please give it a five-star review. Also, if you want to cover any specific subject with me, contact me on Instagram under Sabine VDL Officials or LinkedIn under Sabine Van der Linden. Thank you.